following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Hey, good morning, church. Happy Sunday to you all. 7-Eleven. So get you a Slurpee, okay? That's all that means to me. Uh, Hey, Savannah, Tanner, baby Lenny, glad you're here. Yeah, love those guys. Uh, Hey, if you are a guest with us, my name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor. Welcome to you online, uh, our friends and family who are online with us. Hey, we have a lot of work to do this morning. So if you would, please grab your Bible if you brought it, and I hope you did. And let's open up to Matthew chapter 12. Uh, If you did not bring a Bible with you, that's all right. We've got hardback black Bibles under every single chair, and you can open one of those uh, to Matthew 12. That's on page 817 in those black Bibles. You can open a phone or a tablet. If you're online, you can click that little Bible tab and find Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. Uh, Matthew 12 is where we're going to be. I'd love for you to see this with uh, in, in your own Bible. Uh, Matthew 12. We, we are about three months into this summer series in Matthew. Uh, and man, the response that I am getting from so many of you has been really encouraging. I don't know if you've been encouraged, but I've been encouraged hearing from you that some of you have been encouraged by this, okay? Uh, it's, it's like we, we talk about suffering just at the moment that you need your suffering acknowledged and you need your heart encouraged. Like I've heard that from people. We, we talked about doubt and, and, and maybe you were in a season of doubt or uncertainty who God even is. And he just has been meeting people uh, in the text this summer. We talked last week about Satan and demons and the fireworks go off right in the middle of the sermon, right? The microphone starts to act up. Like if you missed last week, as we talked about demons and stuff, the podcast is really worth your time because it was an interesting experience. And a lot of that was picked up on the podcast, but but hear me, I, I really believe that God is, is moving in our midst this summer as we are preaching through the gospel of Matthew. He just makes that clearer and clearer to me. So, so I hope this has been an encouragement for you as we have been digging into this gospel. But uh, today, our sermon title is this, Possession is Nine-Tenths of the Law. Okay, I've been given uh, kind of goofy sermon titles this whole time, uh, but Possessions is Nine-Tenths of the Law is an expression meaning that ownership is easier to maintain if one has possession of something or it's difficult to enforce if somebody does not. That's what this this means. And it has to do with law. It has to do with possessions and things like that. But today I want to apply that kind of phrase to uh, our text as we dig a little deeper into possession, demon possession, Okay, uh, because last week we talked about this a little bit, demon possession, uh, but today we're going to dig a, a lot deeper into this idea. And man, uh, if, I mean, you just heard it read over you. This is a weird text, okay? This is, and this has been a difficult passage. Like this week has been hard on me trying to figure out how do I teach something that I'm not quite sure I get. Um, and, and so I just want to let, give, give a nod of my hat to Tim Keller because he's way smarter than me and he's like Christian Yoda. Uh, and, and his interpretation of this passage helped me a ton. And so I hope this will serve us well, okay? Now, in the ancient world, in this day and age that we're reading about 2,000 years ago, uh, a lot more issues were associated with the demonic than we associate with the demonic today. Okay, Uh, uh, with the scientific revolution and what we talked about last week in the enlightenment and that we are kind of products of the enlightenment, we attribute most of our issues and problems to to, uh, places other than demons, right? 
but even so, like, so here, here's, consider depression. Okay, depression. Uh, why do people get depressed? Well, we talk about this uh, in our culture. The biologist, a biologist might say, well, it's chemistry, okay? There's an imbalance there and, and, and something chemical needs to be balanced in the brain. Uh, a moralist might say that you have sin that you have just kind of hidden away and it's causing shame and it's causing depression and it's causing darkness. A psychologist might say that it's a failure to like cope with the world around you and you're in need of some counseling and some therapy. And then maybe a superstitious or religious person might say, hey, you've actually got a demon and that needs to be cast out. Well, last week we talked about this a little bit, that, that in trying to suppress the idea that there is something supernatural and spiritual at work in all things in our lives, at least at some level, is a bit naive. To believe that we've moved beyond the supernatural into completely natural explanations for everything that goes on is a bit Naive, Because if things like depression were just biological or just psychological, then why haven't those things eradicated those, those, those issues yet? Why are there more people depressed than ever before? See, I, I, the, the, the case I want to make today, and I think Jesus is making, is that we are multidimensional people. Okay, we are multi-holistic beings, and that means that we are physical. And so some of this is biological, and, and we are social. So some of this is relational, okay? And we are psychological. So there is a part for counseling and therapy and all of that, but we are also spiritual beings as well. So, so we said this last week, okay? Satan and demons are real, They are a real thing. They are a reality. And therefore, they must be considered when it comes to our problems. But then there was this weird little verse that I, you know, kind of skipped over last week. And I did it intentionally because I wanted to talk about it uh, this week. I don't know if it bothered you or not. It sometimes bothers me when preachers skip over complicated verses, okay? This one's complicated. Look back in Matthew chapter 12 at verse 27. Matthew 12 27. This is from last week's passage, so we're not going to preach this again, but let's, let's read this passage again. Jesus says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now, I didn't say anything about that verse last week. But, but Jesus is pointing out that the Pharisees, their sons, are able to cast out demons. Did you see that? It's not just Jesus who can cast out demons. That would make this a lot simpler. The Pharisees are actually casting out demons. They practiced exorcisms just like Jesus is practicing exorcisms. We know this from ancient writings, okay? It's not just Jesus here. If you read Josephus and some ancient first century authors, they will talk about exorcism in the Jewish and Roman culture. It's a thriving business, It's something that's happening very frequently in the ancient world. So Jesus is saying, the Pharisees, hey, you guys can exercise demons too. He does this also back, uh, we we read another passage. I'll put this one up on the screen, Matthew chapter seven. He, He says this in Matthew 7, 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus goes on in the next verse to say, but I don't even know you. 
Like essentially, you're not even legitimate in this relationship with me. You're not really even Christians. But does it not disturb you a little bit that he, they're able to cast out demons? This is strange to me. It may not be strange to you. It is strange to me that Jesus can cast out demons, but that the Pharisees can cast out demons and even non-legitimate believers can cast out demons. What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, I think, and Keller helped me with this. I think Jesus is doing something that's very interesting and very nuanced here. I think he's saying this. There are lots of different ways to deliver people from their problems. Back then they attributed everything to demons. Today we attribute nothing to demons and Jesus is showing us that both are true. They're casting out demons without God's power. So there are many ways to deliver people from their problems. There are many sources of power. And because of that, people will be able to be helped in many different ways. Okay, it's my first point. We're not even in our text. My first point this morning is this. Many things help. Many things help. How could the Pharisees exercise demons without God's power? Well, the answer is there's all sorts of ways to help people with their problems. There's all sorts of, even every other religion, every other philosophy, every other theory in life can produce men and women who say that their lives have been changed, who say that they're, they've overcome bad habits, who say that they found some sort of peace in their lives. Jesus is pointing out that Christians don't have the corner on helping people with their problems. Why? Why can he say this? Because we're not only spiritual, We are, but we aren't only spiritual. We're social and we're physical and we're emotional and we're spiritual. And and so there are lots of ways to get, quote, deliverance from your problems of getting help, as it were. And some of those things are good and right to pursue, at least temporarily. But then Jesus openly acknowledges this. He says, he says, don't just assume that that because something helps, that makes it true. See, this is the problem with today. Today we'll say, hey, if it works for you, then it must be your truth. But that's nonsensical. Plenty of things work that aren't true. We don't don't follow Jesus because he works. We follow Jesus because he is the truth. Jesus is not naive here though, okay? You don't have to be a Christian to overcome alcoholism. Okay, you don't have to be a Christian to have a good marriage. You ever met a really awesome pagan couple? Yeah, they're called your neighbors. If you don't know them, you need to know them. They're great. You don't have to be a Christian to get emotional self-control or to get your career on track or to find stable kind of community relationships, okay? You see, Christianity is not simply a self-help method. It's not simply about overcoming one's problems because there are many ways to get that kind of deliverance. There are many ways, but but our text issued today is something of a warning against those things. Okay, now now this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at the second part of our text first, which is what was read over us, and then we're gonna circle back to the first part. Uh, So in verse 43, we find this weird little illustration. 
Savannah read it over us. This weird little illustration about an unclean spirit and about waterless places and returning with seven other spirits. And, and listen, that only makes sense if you see that Jesus has already acknowledged that the Pharisees can cast out demons. This whole thing only makes sense if you see that the Pharisees can cast out demons as well. Many things help, but now let's look at what happens. I'm going to read it again, Matthew 12, 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit is, has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Okay. That, that passage has weirded me out since I became a Christian. It's so weird. Why would a clean orderly house be a ripe place for demon possession. That's what I've always wanted to know. And Keller helped me this week with this, okay? Jesus starts this little parable here by saying that this unclean spirit or demon has, has been cast out of a person, has left a person, and we are to assume that this is not done by Jesus, okay? Jesus is likely referring to the Pharisees and the Pharisees' sons who are able to cast out demons based on the context of this chapter. So somebody's casting out a demon, it leaves a person, and it says it passes through waterless places, which is essentially deserts, barren, dry, arid land. And you see the demons, as they are wandering through this area, they, they, they are co only comfortable. They're only at rest in places of complete and absolute devastation. That's why they move to the deserts, okay? You can find this in lots of Old Testament references that this is kind of where the enemy and the demonic kind of hang out. But then that, that, that comes in the form, they, they are unable to find rest in these waterless places. And so it ends up having to return, as it were, to the house that it came from, or really, the person that it came from because they cannot be completely at rest unless they are possessing a person. So the demon returns to the house in this little story. It, it returns to the house that it came from and it finds the house swept and put in order. Again, which sounds good. Swept and orderly homes, good. Ain't no hoarders in this thing, right? Clean and orderly. But as we've already said, there are many different ways to clean up a life. There are many different ways, as it were, to exercise your demons, to put your house in order. Many things help, but the person, while clean and orderly, the one word that's really important in there is empty. Many things help, but they cannot heal. Many things help, okay? but they cannot heal. See the spirit, here's, here, follow me here. The spirit comes back with seven other spirits, it says. Evil, more evil, worse than that first spirit to make that person worse off than before. Now, again, don't get freaked out by the number. It's not like seven literal spirits march in 
to a person who is not possessed by a single demon, okay? Seven, Jesus isn't saying like, he's not giving you a number here. Seven isn't the number. Seven in the Bible, when you see seven, it's a number of completion. It's always a number of completion. It's a number of wholeness, okay? And so Jesus isn't saying that there's now literally seven demons in this person. What Jesus is saying is that this person is now completely, perfectly possessed, wholly possessed by these evil spirits. Before there was just one thing that was afflicting them. Now they are completely in bondage. Remember, possession is nine-tenths of the law. They're completely possessed. You see, the only way to get the healing that you want, the only power to actually heal, not just to help, but to heal, is if you give yourself over completely to something. If something, as it were, possesses you. And Jesus is illustrating here that unless it's him that you completely give yourself over to, eventually you will find yourself worse off than you were at the start. Let me give some examples because you don't look like you believe me. <laughs> Guys, um, okay, if, if men in here, if you were growing up, you may have heard something like this uh, as a kid. You were growing up uh, as a child, uh, you get hurt playing or something, you get hurt or something, you skin your knee, fall off your bike, something injures you and you start crying. Start crying and you're losing it and you're shrieking and you're just like in pain. Uh, did you ever have a coach or like a parent or a neighbor or somebody say to you, stop crying. Men don't cry, be a man. This is a very normal sort of thing, okay? Now, now here's the question. Can that little boy take that motivation, gain emotional self-control and stop crying and just like toughen up and essentially kind of put his house in order? I've been there. Yes, yes, he can. He might do it at different levels depending on his age. But, but listen, a boy can, can say, I'm a man. I am not gonna cry. Rub some dirt on that knee, Right? You bet he can. He can cast out that emotion. He can, he can cast out that, those tears with, with self-control. He casts out those tears, but, but hear me, they can be replaced with something. They're replaced with something because that narrative of men don't cry, be a man. That will quickly lead you to a fear of being weak a fear of being perceived as weak, as vulnerable, as emotional. And is it possible that the fear of looking weak is seven times worse than the lack of emotional control that a six-year-old or a seven-year-old has? It, it will be very difficult for a man who has a fear of looking weak to have a good marriage. If he's unable to admit and show weakness, it will be very difficult for a man to father children when all he wants to show them is strength. And oh, by the way, he'll likely exacerbate the situation by laying that same thing and expectation on his children. Maybe it looks like this, okay? Maybe, uh, maybe when you were in school as a, as a kid, a teenager, something like that, uh, and, and your parents lovingly and caringly pushed you to do your best. Just do your best. Just do your very best to 
succeed, to excel in sports or in school or in whatever activity it is that you were. Just do your best. Just be, be a winner. Do your very best. And so you, as a kid, you started working your tail off in whatever arena it was for you to, to master that thing, to get to the success level that you thought mom and dad were looking for. You became disciplined and driven to succeed and never fail. And hear me, by what power did you do this? By what power did you get your house in order? Well, well, it was in order to please your parents, to please them. And and you gave yourself over to that. And and what that can develop into is, is a fear of letting people down call it people pleasing. We don't say that's a good thing very often. Now, is it possible that a fear of letting others down can become seven times worse than a fear of letting your parents down? Like you can be bound by your success if this takes over you. You can be completely possessed by your drive. I could argue with every single one of these things, okay? You see, you are a physical being, so you can start a diet program and you can hit the gym, you can CrossFit, you can do whatever it is you want and you can start working out, but you can become possessed by that thing. Any CrossFitters in the room? No, because they're working out, yo. (laughs) You are a social being. You are, so you can find people and groups who share affinities or experiences with you, but hear me, they can possess you. You can, you're an emotional being. And so yet yeah, it is good and right for you to seek therapy, seek counseling and talk about your family of origin or father wounds or mother wounds, like those sorts of things. But, but listen, those things can quickly, you can quickly become dependent on them unhealthily. You see, you can do all these things to get your health in order. And yes, many of them will help you. Many of those things are good things, but... You must not let them possess you. See, the lie that the Bible says is at the root of all of our problems is this. We think we're in charge. If you were in our Fathom Academy uh, spiritual warfare class with Gary on Wednesday, you heard this. This was Genesis chapter three, the fall of man. The lie is this. We don't really need God. We can manage on our own. We can take care of these things. Heck, you can sweep your life into order with many different things, but it only sets you up for a much greater fall down the line. Many things help, but they cannot heal. Here's the illustration that I love for this. Just, I think this is helpful. Doctors will say, if you're a doctor, maybe you would say this, that one trouble with patients is that they only want you to treat symptoms. One of the problems with patients is is that they want you to treat their symptoms. Their symptoms are what's pressing the nerves in their life. So uh, doctors will say that patients are in pain. And one of the rules in medicine is that you never eliminate pain before you find the root cause of the pain. Because if until you know why a person is hurting, you better not get rid of that pain because that's the only link to that hurt. You need to know and trace why there is a presenting issue. The problem is patients put so much pressure on doctors to cure symptoms that a lot of times they cave. They just want to feel better. They don't really care what's causing the pain. Just get it out from me. As long as it goes away, I'm okay. 
even if there's something underneath it that's going to kill me. There are many sources of power to superficially help you, to treat yourself. Many things help. But when it comes back and it finds the house empty and swept and put in order, it will bring seven more spirits, more evil than itself, and the last state of the person will be worse. That's what Jesus is saying. Many things help, but they cannot heal. So what to do? What to do with this? Well, this is where I want us to swing back to verse 38 in the first portion of our text today. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, remember this whole chapter, all of chapter 12 is about the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. We've been in this same chapter for like two or three weeks. It's all about this conflict with the Pharisees. And thus far in this chapter, just in this chapter, Jesus has healed a man with a withered hand. Remember this? And he cast out a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. That's just happened in chapter 12. That's not to mention everything that's happened up to this point. But that's not enough for the Pharisees. They, they see him cast out a demon. They see him heal a man with a withered hand. That's not enough. So they say, hey, we want to see a sign from you, Jesus. We want proof. Prove it, man. Now, it's not as if the Pharisees are confused here. Okay, they're not genuinely wondering if Jesus really is who he says he is. These are the people who are inventing reasons of why not to believe. They've seen him do unbelievable miracles and they are stubborn. And, and Jesus recognizes this. Anytime somebody comes at, with genuine questions of Jesus, he never casts them off. Okay, it's not that there are not good reasons to believe. It's that these guys don't want to believe. And this is an application for us, okay? Until your heart is open to believe, you'll never be convinced to believe. It's not merely a rational thing. So again, they found their help somewhere else. They found power somewhere else. They've actually cast out demons themselves. They've rejected the validity of Jesus' miracles, and so they, de de they demand a sign. They want some sort of spiritual proof. Their insolence is obvious here. Look at verse 39. But Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they, rep they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Okay. So Jesus will not, of course, produce some sort of wondrous event just to draw attention to himself, especially when it comes from a position of rejection. He's just not going to be like, I'm a card trick guy. I'll show you. It's not how he rolls. Instead, he says, oh, but there will be a sign. 
and he gives a typological response. Okay? Uh, he, he says that he compares Israel to, uh, or the, the Jews here, the Pharisees here, to the Israelites under Jonah and the Ninevites under Jonah. Okay? So Jonah is the, and the fish, Jonah and the fish, you know the story, uh, is a type of Christ's burial and resurrection. He makes that very clear. He's saying, hey, the sign that you're looking for is going to be the resurrection. Uh, yeah, I'm not giving you a sign, but I'll give you a sign. It's a sign of Jonah. It's the resurrection. In Jonah, the people of Nineveh, they repented. If you remember the story, Jonah shows up, preaches judgment to them, and they repent. They repent in Nineveh. The Assyrians repent. And and because the Pharisees, now with Jesus in front of them, someone greater than Jonah, they will not turn. They will not believe. They will not repent. Because of that, the men of Nineveh will be their judges. They will be judged for this. And then he mentions the queen of the South, which again is a weird thing, but uh, this is a reference to 1 Kings 10 and the queen of Sheba. If you know the story, uh, she shows up to test Solomon, David's son, uh, the wise Solomon, and she brings hard questions, much like the Jewish leaders have been kind of setting before Jesus. And the difference is that she actually sought out truth. She wasn't trying to trap Solomon. She was actually looking for truth and, and willing to accept Solomon's wisdom when he gave it but not the Pharisees. And then on the heels of those two little illustrations, he tells this parable of the demon leaving and coming back in the waterless places and all that. So what does this all mean? Well, here you have a person who has cleaned and swept their house all clean. Everything is exercised as it were. Everything is clean and tidy and neat, probably implying that that had been done by the power of the Pharisees, but they'd never let Jesus in. They had never believed in the one greater than Jonah. They'd never believed in the one greater than Solomon. And as a result, they're empty. And now anything can get in there. What this means is is that Jesus is saying this, it's not good enough for you to be good people. It's not good enough for you to clean up your life. It's not good enough for you to pursue emotional health. It's not good enough for you to even believe in the Bible's moral teachings. It's not good enough for you to be a good church person. And it's certainly not good enough for you to just try and emulate Christ in your behaviors. And it's my final point, okay? Many things help. They cannot heal. And that means you need to be possessed by Christ. what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have his power is to let him possess you. Now, I know we don't like to use the word possession because we feel like it's a negative connotation to it. Like, you know, the exorcist or, you know, possessions and this is, you need to be possessed by Christ. It's to believe in the sign of the resurrection. It's to let Christ possess every part of you. If you aren't possessed by him, you will be possessed by something else. You will give yourself over to something. You'll sweep your house in order and seven more will show up and and that's what you'll give yourself over to. You're gonna be possessed by something. Be possessed by Jesus. Now here's why. Here's why. 
if you're looking at Jesus like some sort of self-help solution for your problems and you have no real desire to fill your life with him, he will not work that way. This is that Matthew 7 passage. You can get your demons exercised, but surely I don't know you. Christian principles and morals might make some difference in your life. You can use Christianity as one of those things to sweep out your life with. You really can, right? You, it might, it's going to help your marriage. Loving and serving your spouse first, that's a great principle for marriage, and it will not save you. It might help you parent. Right? Loving and serving your kids, not building them up to be the little mini idols that our culture wants to make them into. That's a great thing. But being a Christian parent will not save you. It might help you with your addictions. It might help you in your job. It might help you in relationships. Like all of these things, good things. But if you do not fill the empty space in your heart with Christ, if you're not possessed by him, you are left open and susceptible to a whole host of other things, including, hear me, legalism, self-righteousness, those kinds of Christians that you, they drive you crazy. Surely I did not know you. See, I think this is often why some people walk away, like walk away from Christianity, from their faith. It, I think it's because they've used the Bible and Jesus as a source to cast out their demons, to sweep their house in order. And they've never really been fully possessed by Christ. And they think they've tried Christianity when they've never tried it. They've tried sweeping it out with some Christian principles, but they've never been possessed by Jesus. Okay, here's how I'll illustrate this. When I was a freshman in high school, we were getting close to um, the freshman homecoming dance. First dance in my high school career. Uh, and so uh, it was a big deal for me. I wanted it to be good. I wanted freshman homecoming to be good. I mean, this could be the gauge on for how the next four years were going to go for me. I didn't realize that was myopic, but that's how I felt. Right? So I was ready. I had a plan for the girl I was going to ask to go with me. So I was ready for this. Suddenly, something happened that I wasn't ready for or expecting. Okay? Um, one of my best friends, Adam, uh, Adam uh, had terrible pain in his stomach one day at school, uh, and he had to leave school early. And I got a call later that day from his mom to find out that he had an emergency appendectomy. They had to take his appendix out. Okay? Uh, he could not walk, let alone go to the homecoming dance. Okay, that's not a good look, blood coming out of your shirt. So I went to see him a couple days later. He's home. Uh, he's, you know, whatever, hopped up on something. And, and he said to me something that, uh, again, I wasn't prepared to hear. This is what he said. He says, Chris, we're, we're, we're bros. I was like, you start with that. You start with a we're bros thing, something bad's coming, okay? He says, Chris, I want to ask you something, and it's going to be heavy, would you take my girlfriend, Michelle, to the homecoming dance for me? She doesn't want to miss out on her freshman homecoming. Now, I didn't have anything against Michelle, okay? But we weren't bros, okay? Like, we weren't what you would call friends, but, but he, he pulled the bros card. And so I was like, okay, yeah, Adam, I will... I will take Michelle 
to my freshman homecoming. So we made the preparations, okay? We got dressed up. I bought her a corsage that matched her dress color, okay? High schoolers are not taking notes here, but uh, uh, we made plans to go to dinner at the macaroni grill. Real nice, right? Okay. All the arrangements were, were made. I picked her up at, uh, on the night of the dance. Our parents took pictures, you know, there was the hair picture and the, I slid the corsage on her wrist and there's the wrist picture. Like, you know, those pictures, okay. Um, and, and, and then we went to dinner and macaroni grill. I like the macaroni grill. I took Marcy there on a date. So it's, a, it's closed now, but you know, whatever. It was a great night. It was a great night. I was like, Michelle, working out. We could be bros, okay? But when we got to the dance, something happened. Again, unbelievable. I was not expecting this. We walked into the school dance, in the school gym, crepe, paper, stars, all the things, okay? And as soon as we entered the school gym, Michelle was gone. She was gone. She ran off to hang out with her friends and left me all alone, and not for just a song or two, for the entire dance. She ditched me, okay? I, it was like a real-life Napoleon Dynamite, okay? I was standing over by the, the snack table eating pretzels the entire dance by myself, and she shows up at the very last dance, which I think was like an Aerosmith song, okay? And so we wanted to have one last slow dance. I was like, oh, great, now I have to dance with Michelle on the last dance, Aerosmith, okay? It was, it was the worst dance of my life, freshman homecoming. And I didn't even want to go with her, I just was being a good bro to Adam. So I dropped her off at the curb, okay? Didn't even walk her to the door. No, that's not true. I wish I had, okay? But that's, that's how it played out in my mind after I got home. It was like, I should have just left her at the curb, you know? That's a dumb story. Michelle had no interest in me. She had no romantic feelings for me. She had, didn't want to make memories with me. She didn't want me doing this picture with her. She didn't want to go to the dance with me. She didn't want me at all. She made that perfectly clear. She just wanted the flower and the dinner and the dance for the scrapbook. Church, are you in this Jesus thing for the things that he can give you? They might be great things. Do you want Jesus just because you want a better marriage? He can help you with that. Do you want Jesus because you, you want to kind of manage your debt? Yeah, he can help you with some good financial principles. Do you want Jesus because you're addicted to something? Do you want Jesus because your kids are driving you nuts and you think they're on a trajectory to wake up one day and kill you in your sleep? This is a real thing. These are all good things. Not the kids killing you, but listen, Jesus can help you in your marriage. Jesus can help you with your finances. Jesus can help you with your ethics. Jesus can help you with your parenting. But if you are in this thing for what he can do for you and not for him, you'll be sorely disappointed because you'll miss out on him. You will be swept and in order and empty. You need to be possessed by Christ. I'm almost done. You see, when all, uh, when all you're after is just uh, an exorcism, 
to take care of some problem, some demon in your life. You'll only ever see Jesus as this practical. You'll only ever see Jesus as practical. He'll forever be practical to you and you'll miss him. But if you surrender, if you give up on the pursuit of self-help and you surrender to the healing that only Jesus can give, then you won't see him as simply practical, but rather he will become beautiful to you. And practical and beautiful are far different things. And if you're a guy in here and you're like, beautiful, I'm uncomfortable with that language, Chris. Is that how guys sound? I don't mean beautiful like, like you see your wife is beautiful. or like I mean beautiful like if you were on the top of a mountain and you look out and that sight just makes you go, <gasps> that's the beautiful I'm talking about. That's how God can be to you when he possesses you. This is how we need to see God as beautiful. That's being possessed by him. And hear me, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you today. We're grateful for this text. What a weird one, Lord. I just, it was weird. I don't know. Thank you for it, I think. But I do see in the middle of this text some really important instructions for us when it comes to how we clean up our lives, when it comes to how we change. God, there's so many ways and means and beliefs and strategies for how we can sweep our lives into order, for how we can kind of get things neat and tidy in our house. And Lord, we want that. We want our lives to make sense. We want sanity. And yet, Lord, you, you call us to something deeper than that. You call us not to just fix the problem, to not just help the pain, but you call us to, to healing. That underneath the presenting issues is a bigger issue. And if we don't give ourselves over to you, Lord, we will miss that and we will be ultimately more evil than we were before. Lord, help us in this endeavor. Help us be fully possessed by you not just surface presenting issues, but deep down into the crevices of our heart and our soul. I pray that for me. I pray that for my friends today. So Holy Spirit, move in our midst. Use these things for our good, for your glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.